Welcome to Femme Macabre, a podcast about life's mysteries, oddities, and of course, the, the macabre. macabre, hosted by Stephanie Malosh and Aaron Vance. And welcome to another episode of Femacob. We are well into spooky season, and what better way to celebrate the most wonderful time of the year than with scary movies and murder? <laughs> Aaron, before we get started with today's episode, I was wondering, what is your favorite scary movie? My favorite horror film is The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers. I am a gigantic folk horror buff. So, yeah, like, my favorite horror movies are The Witch, um, The Wicker Man, like, the original Wicker Man from the 70s, and Midsummer. I just, I love them. I also just rewatched The Village for the first time since it came out, so in, like, 15 years. (laughs) And also one of my favorite all-time folk horror films. Yeah. In terms of, like, traditionally spooky things, I don't know. I love it all. Like, I'll watch any horror movie. I think the last horror movie that really unsettled me, though, it, it's not even a horror movie. It's called Charlie Says, and it's a movie about one of the Manson girls and, like, how she became a Charles Manson follower, and then, like, it goes back and forth between her time in prison and how, like, a woman from a university is, like, trying to teach her and two of the other Manson girls about, like, feminism and stuff. And then, like, it has flashbacks to her time in the Manson family and the killings. And it was just, like, it's called Charlie Says because half the dialogue of the girls is them being like, well, Charlie says this. Charlie says women are supposed to do this. And it was, like, like, it's not a horror movie at all, but it was the most unsettling movie I've seen in a really long time. I'm going to add that to my list of films to watch. And Matt Smith, who's, like, Doctor Who plays (gasps) Charles Manson... Oh, what? That's so weird. Yeah, and Hannah Murray from Skins, which I don't know if other people were as obsessed with the British teen show Skins as I was, but she (laughs) plays the main character. And it's funny because, like, the two best actors in it are faking American accents, and they're awesome. But it's also, like, Matt Smith's eyes aren't as terrifying and crazy as Charles Manson's. I mean, to be fair, I don't think anybody's eyes are as crazy and unsettling as his eyes, so. Anyway, there's my digression for scary movies. <laughs> one of my all-time favorite horror films is Friday the 13th, like the original one from the 1980s. And if I remember correctly, it was one of the first ever scary movies I had ever seen. Um, and I think I was like 11, maybe 12, And I was sitting in my parents' basement with my cousin, and I remember just being absolutely fascinated and then just being scared shitless. Like, oh, I just remember (laughs) it being the first, like, movie I ever swore during. uh, And (laughs) 
even then it wasn't even like really bad swearing. I just went, oh shit, at one of the jump scares. <laughs> but I felt so bad about swearing that I went upstairs to my dad immediately and told him, dad, I'm so sorry, but I just said, oh shit, because this movie was really scary. <laughs> He's like, it's okay. <laughs> Did I ever tell you how when I was in like grade four, maybe I was obsessed with Avril Lavigne. I wanted to be her. I wanted to be like a punk. And I had this, like, mm. portable radio. And so I'd put, like... So I recorded Avril Lavigne's first CD onto a cassette tape so that I could play it in my radio. <laughs> and my friend Ashley and I would go into the very corner of the playground at recess and play, like, the angstiest songs from Let Go. And we would practice swearing because we were too act- like too nervous to swear in real life. <laughs> so we'd, like... We'd go there and we'd, like, whisper, Shit. Shit. Bitch. To each other and practice until we could like actually say the words out loud. It was very, I was uh, very. That's cool hilarious. <laughs> it uh, might even have been grade six, which makes it worse. <laughs> that's really funny. I don't think I ever did that, but I know I did other weird <laughs> stuff as a kid, so I can't, I can't judge you for that at all. <laughs> um, I just know that Friday the Thirteenth started my love for slasher films like the classic like 80s 90s horror films and I mean that was also around the same age where I would literally like run home from the school bus to watch Unsolved Mysteries on TV. I fell asleep watching Unsolved Mysteries last night. (laughs) (laughs) I just remember like school would let out I would hop onto the bus the bus would like drop me off at like 328 and I would run like the two blocks home from the bus stop to try to make it in time for a 330 for the start of the first episode. I don't blame I'm you. Just it's a weird the kid. best. I the first time I saw Friday the 13th was like a couple years ago. Um the indie theater in our neighborhood, the Plaza RIP closed because of COVID. Every Friday the 13th they have like a Friday the 13th special. So Mark and I nice. and one of my best friends Dania and her partner Nick all went. And it was the best. I love that movie. Ah, that's so good. Yeah, it's I have to say I mean, the fact that I wrote a university paper about Friday the 13th for my horror literature class, I think just gives you enough information to know that it's just my all-time favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I don't know what you've been up to this uh, October, Erin. I've been trying to watch one scary movie each day. We are currently recording this on the 18th of October, and all I've watched so far is The Exorcist and... With that said, turns out that was also my first time watching The Exorcist because the moment it started and they were in like an archaeological dig in the middle of nowhere, I was just like, what the fuck? So I don't know if you've ever seen The Exorcist, but that really threw me for a loop because I thought I'd seen it before, but it turns out I haven't. I definitely watched it when I was quite a bit younger with my mom on Halloween, but I don't actually Mm. remember very much about it. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why I thought I'd seen it is because I've seen so many clips here and there, like, in popular culture, and so... Oh, definitely. I think it just says a lot about the film itself that, you know, it's such an iconic classic horror film that you already know almost everything about it, even if you haven't seen it at all. Yeah, like, every TV show's done, like, an Exorcist episode, like The Simpsons, Family Guy, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) 
Based on the novel of the same name, The Exorcist is based on the true story of a months-long exorcism performed by Jesuit priests on a 14-year-old boy in Maryland. However, the film that was released on December 26, 1973, tells the story of a young girl possessed by the devil. The director of the film, William Friedkin, had gotten access to notes written up by the priests and medical doctors involved in that exorcism in 1949. The Exorcist is now known to be one of the greatest horror films of all time, but if you were to ask Friedkin and the cast, that's not all it is. Friedkin has explained in interviews that they never approached the making of the film as a horror film, but rather as a story about the mystery of faith. Ooh. Despite the film's release being met with mixed reviews, it quickly became Warner Brothers' highest-grossing film at the time, quickly surpassing My Fair Lady with $1.9 million in its first week, and it was only played at 24 movie theaters across the U.S. and Canada. The Toronto Star dedicated a full page to the film in January of 1974, detailing the masses of moviegoers waiting in frigid temperatures just to get a ticket. A promotional video for the film released in 1974 interviewed the manager and employees of the National Theatre in Westwood, Los Angeles, and explained that Friedkin and the novelist, William Blatty, had paid for catering services to provide hot coffee and refreshments to the people queuing in the rain. If only they still did that today. <laughs> oh, right? This same promotional video discusses the cultural impact of the film. It was the first movie of its kind, especially with some of its most iconic scenes, such as the headspin and the demonic voices. The film had people running out into the lobby, throwing up in their seats, and fainting. The staff at the National Theatre were equipped with smelling salts to help rouse the unfortunate moviegoers. Needless to say, the film kept ambulances busy. But Friedkin believes that these moments of theological horror weren't the sole cause of these fainting spells. Which I would have to agree with, because, I mean... Mm -hmm. I watched it when I was like 14 and I was like creeped out but I wasn't super scared yeah and also like my main thought while watching this movie was not oh no this is making me question my faith <laughs> no definitely not he rather attributes the cause to the hyper realism and medical horror of the arteriogram performed on the main character Reagan portrayed by Linda Blair, who was only 14 at the time. I didn't know she was only 14. Yeah. Uh, considering how messed up some of her scenes are, I am surprised any children were actually cast in this film. I mean, it was the 70s. They weren't exactly known for their True. ethical film making. Ugh. I'm talking about The Shining. <laughs> yeah. In 1972, Friedkin had the opportunity to observe a real radiologist and his team at the NYU Medical Center conducting an arteriogram while location scouting. Friedkin was so impressed by what he'd witnessed in the operating room that he hired the very real Dr. Barton Lane, his assistant, Paul Bateson, and a nurse named Nancy to perform the procedure in his film. The scene was filmed there, in the hospital's sterile lights, catching the iconic moment when the blood spurts from Reagan's artery all over the operating table. Okay, why is it so much creepier that they actually filmed it in a functioning hospital with actual doctors? Oh my god. Right? Like, they just wanted that super realistic feel. And, like, especially watching that scene. You're asking scene. for a curse. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they wanted oh. to be cursed, but, like... If you ever want the recipe for a curse, just look into how this movie was made. Oh my god. Oh god. Okay. <laughs> Considering the film's notoriety for being cursed, I mean, you can't get more cursed than several injuries and multiple deaths and a mysterious fire on set that burned everything except Reagan's bedroom down. This episode isn't actually about the exorcist at all. Not the curses, or the film, or even the exorcism that the whole story was based on. Instead, today's episode is all about a murder took place four years later. 
On September 20, 1977, the New York Times published an announcement for the funeral of Addison Verrill. It read, A funeral service for Addison Verrill, movie industry reporter for Variety, was held on Saturday in Hamden, Connecticut. Mr. Verrill was found stabbed to death last Wednesday in his apartment at number 2 Horatio Street. He was 36 years old. A Variety spokesman said that the writer's apartment had been ransacked and that the police suspected robbery as the motive for the killing. Mr. Verrill, who graduated from Princeton University in 1963, had been with Variety for 10 years. Previously, he spent three years in Nigeria with the Peace Corps. He is survived by his parents, who reside in Hamden, a brother, and a sister. Now, Addison Verrill had been found stabbed to death in his New York City apartment at No. 2 Horatio Street six days earlier on September 14th. Lieutenant John Younes of Homicide was on the case, and current theories ruled out a break-in. Verrill's easily pawnable possessions, such as his television and typewriter, had been left behind and there were no signs of forced entry, which begs the question, did Verrill know his attacker? Addison Verrill was a regular at the Mineshaft, an after-hours gay bar in Greenwich Village and other gay bars in the area. He preferred the atmosphere and company of those who frequented leather bars over dance clubs and could often be found at a corner table chatting the night away. Verrill knew a lot of people, and wherever Verrill went, people followed, automatically making many of his favorite haunts the hottest gay bars in town. Police believe that Verrill had left Mineshaft around 6 a.m. after having met his murderer at the bar or on his way home. Not unlike today, the 1970s were a time when the murders of gay men were heavily underreported in mainstream media, and their murders were seldom solved as potential witnesses would be too afraid to identify themselves. So, by September 26th, Arthur Bell of The Village Voice had been one of the very few people who reported on the murder of the well-known entertainment journalist. In fact, the most reliable sources of information for the research Steph did for this story come from three articles published by Bell in The Village Voice over the months of September and October 1977 following Farrell's death. The Village Voice was an alternative weekly newspaper that ran stories about and for New York City's many counter and underground cultures and had been in operation since 1955. Throughout its history, The Village Voice has been home for work by writers like Ezra Pound, E.E. E. Cummings, Lorraine Hansberry, Lester Bangs, and artists and cartoonists like the likes of satirist Jules Pfeiffer, creator of The Simpsons' Matt Groening, and many more. Its final publication was in 2018. However, the Village Voice website is still live today and features archived material and republications of its old newsprint. As Aaron mentioned, there was very little information about Addison Verrill's murder. That is, until September 22, 1977, when Arthur Bell of The Village Voice was contacted by the murderer himself. He describes the chilling moment in his October 3rd article titled, Phone Call from a Fugitive. Jen Albert, another writer for The Village Voice, rang up Arthur Bell saying, This nut called the office twice, claiming he killed Verrill. He wants to talk to you. He says last week's front page story was wonderful, but that there's one mistake. You called the murderer a psycho, and he says he isn't. Ugh. That is, like, it's funny because that's such a typical reaction of, like, attention-seeking murderers mm -hmm. to call in. But on the other hand, so many people falsely confess to crimes, again, for attention. Yeah. That, like, I mean, I don't even know what to think, really. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting, though. It's like... <laughs> yeah. I'm just calling to I let do... you know I'm not a psycho, okay? <laughs> okay. Well, I like how he frames it as, like, the story is wonderful, but there's a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's just... 
I don't know. <laughs> That's just kind of hilarious. It's horrible, but it's pretty funny. Yeah. It's like, um, just so you know, you wrote a really great story, but I'm not, I'm not really crazy. I just killed him. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Jan Albert continued her call with Belle saying, this guy is very aggressive, very theatrical. He said that I'll be able to write a book titled I Talk to a Killer. <laughs> He's calling back in five minutes, so should I give him your phone number? And within ten minutes of saying yes to Jan, Bell was on the phone with Addison Verrill's supposed killer. Bell wrote up his conversation with the killer in the article, and he wrote, A clear, pleasant voice asked, Is that your picture on page 23 of The Voice? No, I answered. That's Addison Verrill. Oh, it sure doesn't look like Addison Verrill. I killed Addison. Oh. What? Then what did Addison look like? Better than that, he said. Look, I like your story and I like your writing, but I'm not a psychopath. Who is this? I just told you. I killed Addison Verrill. I can't tell you my name. I'm gay and I needed money and I'm an alcoholic, but I'm no psychopath. I have so many questions. Mm-hmm. So many questions. Mm-hmm. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. Is he, like, oh, I don't even, I don't even know. Over the course of their 20-minute phone conversation, the man Bell spoke to claimed to have been sober during the three months leading up to the murder that took place in the early morning of September 14th. He'd gone out to Badlands, a bar in New York City's West Village, when Addison Verrill, still a stranger to him at the time, had offered to buy him a drink. The two followed up with cocaine, poppers, and weed, and by 3am, they'd decided to move on to the mineshaft, the popular after-hours bar I mentioned earlier. Okay, yeah. first of all, he says he, he says four, four descriptive things. He says he's gay, he needs money, and he's an alcoholic. Yeah. None of those things make you a murderer. And then he's nope. like, but I'm not a psychopath. That's, like, the only one that possibly even hints at becoming a murderer, and he's like, I'm not that one. Ugh, this dude. (laughs) This mysterious caller said he had no idea who Addison Verrill was until several strangers had walked up to him at the bar, which is when he realized he was a superstar, as he said in the article, and he realized he wanted more than a quickie at the bar. He tells Belle that he asked Verrill, who was quite reluctant at first, to go back to his place. And at around 5 a.m., they hopped out of the cab outside Verrill's 17th floor studio apartment at number 2 Horatio Street, just a few blocks away from Chelsea Market. The caller claimed he and Verrill drank two bottles of scotch and snorted more coke before having sex at 7.30 in the morning. The 70s were wild. The caller describes the moments just following the sex he'd had with Verrill, explaining that he and Verrill ended up wanting different things. The caller wanted more, whether it be friendship or love, but Verrill wasn't interested. I can't fathom exactly what I did, he tells Belle during his phone call. I can see that it was my alcoholism. There's a stigma placed on alcoholics, but I needed money, and I hated the rejection. It was the rejection that triggered things. Something flared up in my head. I decided to do something I'd never done before. I took a heavy frying pan from the kitchen and knocked Addison out. What? Then I went into a drawer in the right-hand side of the kitchen, removed a knife, and stuck it into Addison's chest. Ugh. I plunged it too high. I should have stuck it a bit more towards the center left. Um. Now, if that's not a psychopath, I don't know what is. <laughs> um. Like, he wants to be BFFs or, like, in a relationship and they just met. And yeah. then he's like, okay, well, that didn't work out, so I'm going to hit you with a frying pan and stab you. Okay. <laughs> Once he'd killed Addison, the killer ransacked the place. 
He left with only $57 in cash, Beryl's master charge card, passport, and some clothes. He spent the cash on booze and spent the rest of the day high. Was it worth it? Bell describes his caller as eager to talk. He divulged pertinent information, then stepped back, as if longing to be captured but afraid of giving himself up. The caller described himself as around Addison Verrill's age, a little shorter, thinner, and in better shape. <laughs> he mentioned wanting to atone for the murder he'd committed, but finally decided that, and I quote, there's no way to atone. I'd like to atone, but I don't want to give myself up. I wouldn't be able to practice again. I'd lose my license. This is a wild ride. Based on the fact that he knew that where he had stabbed wasn't efficient so he like tried <laughs> efficient to is one word to, to describe it and the yeah. fact yeah and the fact that he like is thinking he might lose a license and not be able to practice like he's obviously in the medical field i guess we're gonna find to out. some degree once the call was over bell went straight to the authorities seeking out lieutenant john yunes who confirmed the details the caller had given him were things only the killer would know Lieutenant Yoon's predicted that the killer would call Bell again and set him up with emergency phone numbers and scheduled a patrol car to pass by his apartment every 30 minutes to make sure he was safe. That evening, with his friend Sean and the then editor of The Village Voice, Marianne Partridge, keeping him company, Bell settled in for an evening with Chinese takeaway, cheap wine, and a taped Sophia Loren interview, which honestly sounds like a great night. Um... <laughs> Along with four other detectives keeping watch, they waited for the man they had dubbed Mr. Gaybar to call him back. At 11.30 p.m., the phone finally rang. However, instead of Verrill's killer, it was a different man, a man claiming to know the killer. He says his friend, a man he'd met earlier that year in July, had called him the day of the murder to confess. This new caller, named Mitch by Bell to protect his identification, described his friend. The physical description matched perfectly with the description given to Bell by the killer himself during their phone call. Mitch continued to explain that they'd met at St. Vincent's Hospital and that his friend the killer was a recovering alcoholic who'd lost multiple jobs because of his drinking problem. One of his previous jobs, a medical technician, who once had a brief appearance in The Exorcist. His name? Paul Bateson. Whoa, I don't want to watch that scene ever again. This Mitch guy wanted to meet with Arthur Bell at a bar, but instead, Bell went straight to the police station, where Lieutenant Younes asked a police officer to go find Mitch, pay his bar tab, and bring him into the station. Smart. The NYPD coincidentally also had a few officers at Paul Bateson's apartment. Although he hadn't been a strong suspect before now, he hadn't been at home when officers had previously gone around to speak to him. Mitch was brought in, and so was Paul Bateson. Mitch was released a few hours later, but Bateson, dressed in a grey hooded sweatshirt, faded blue jeans, and work boots, and apparently suffering from delirium tremens, confessed to everything. Bateson was born August 24, 1940, in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. During the war, he had been stationed in Germany, which is where his tumultuous drinking problems began because, as he explained in a prison interview with Arthur Bell detailed in the Village Voice article, a talk on the wild side, there wasn't much to do. I mean, I get that a lot of people 
come out of war with drinking and drug problems, but not having much to do seems like... I mean, I've heard that from, like, bored teenagers living in the suburbs. There's nothing better to do, so they, you know, they do drugs, but... (laughs) Okay, well, I guess the horrors of war were boring to him. In 1964, Paul moved to New York City, where he dated a man for nine years. During this relationship, Paul and his beau hosted and attended countless parties. After their breakup... Paul moved to Borough Park in Brooklyn and commuted to his new job at the NYU Medical Center. He worked as a neuro-x-ray radiologist, and he was well-liked and respected by his peers at the hospital. The scene in The Exorcist in which Paul Bateson appears is allegedly quite telling of his personality. I know. He had a calming bedside matter that put patients at ease, which the film captured as he navigates Reagan to the operating room table and gently explains what he's doing as he and the nurse are preparing her for the arteriogram the doctor is about to perform. I rewatched the scene after writing this script, and I was just like, it just gave me the heebie-jeebies, because he's all like, hey, Reagan, we're just going to move you over here. Can you scooch down the table a little bit? And it's like, (laughs) I hate it. Although his appearance in the film was brief, it seemed to impact Bateson deeply. In his interview with Bell, he explains that accepting to take part in the film was a belated revenge on his father. (laughs) Somebody has read Freud 101. His father would punish him by not allowing him to go out Sunday matinees when he was younger, instead forcing him to stay home and listen to opera on the radio. When he was not at the hospital, Paul Bateson lived openly as a gay man. He told Bell in his interview that he'd often be at the Eagle's Nest, a popular leather bar at the time, looking to meet men. Unfortunately, his drinking became such a problem that in 1973, months after the release of The Exorcist, he was fired from his job at the hospital. By the time he was arrested in 1977, Paul Bateson had started drinking heavily again, drinking at least a quart of vodka per day. That's a lot. I would die. I would be dead. Uh, yeah. Several times over. My ghost would (laughs) die. He'd start drinking when he'd be getting ready to go out to the bars, but would more often than not end up staying home because he drank too much. However, just before his relapse at the time of the murder, Paul Bateson had managed to sober up. He was spending most of his time in AA meetings and found himself more and more interested in meeting a life partner rather than partying. Until his arrest, he had managed to find a few odd jobs. A cleaner, repairman, messenger for a liquor store, and an usher at Big Top, a male porn film and vaudeville theater on Broadway. One of his co-workers at the Big Top described him as tender, warm, and loving, but that he was over the top in everything he did. Bateson's charm didn't go unnoticed by Arthur Bell either, who writes in his article that the man he met in the visiting quarters of the men's house of detention at Rikers Island was a clean-shaven, serene man, a very different one than the frenzied man that he'd seen the night of the arrest. Arthur Bell writes about Paul Bateson's attractiveness, writing that he was, quote, extraordinarily appealing, interesting in a quiet way. Bell explains he knows Bateson is toying with him, coming onto him and tries to stop himself from looking into his electric blue eyes. Oh, somebody's got a crush. That's a direct quote from his article. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's not let's not describe the eye color of murderers in an appealing way in reporting maybe. <laughs> so he distracted himself from the electric blue of Bateson's eyes by focusing on the gold crucifix dangling from a chain around his neck. Bell ends his article by writing, quote, As I prepare to leave, he says he wishes he could go home with me. Strange. Eerie feelings. This is the man who has admitted to killing someone I knew. Yet, if we had met six weeks ago, if the proposition had been made in a bar instead of a prison, I'd have said, you're on. 
Huh. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that's probably one of the most like chilling pieces of information that has stuck with me since writing this. Because it's just like it's a little uh, Bundy-esque, to be honest. It it really is. It really had a lot of those aspects for me while I was reading it. Like, the romanticized, idealized killer. Mm-hmm. I hate it in the first place, but also it's so fascinating to actually hear a reporter, like, in the first person talk about his own experience being like, dang. Dang, yeah. this man is hot. I'm listening to a book by Ted Bundy's ex-girlfriend right now. And like this actually reminds me a lot of that because after Ted Bundy was arrested for like the second time and like actually convicted of murders, it was so and it's still so freakishly grossly common in like the media and in true crime groups and stuff for people to be like, "Oh, I'd let him murder me. Oh, he's hot." Oh. That is so gross. I hate that. Serial killer fans are terrifying and should not be a thing. Yeah, it's very disturbing. It's one thing to be interested in true crime and in criminology and things that we talk about on this podcast. I find it hard to not be interested in them, but there's a line. (laughs) Exactly. Paul Bateson was not just a murderer, but a suspected serial killer, suspected of having murdered and dismembered six gay men before throwing their bagged up bodies into the Hudson River. This was also known as the Bag Murders, which is a horrifying name of New York. But that's a story for another day. And although Bateson was never convicted for those murders, he was officially convicted for the murder of Addison Verrill in 1979 and sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was released on parole in 2003 and subsequently released from parole in 2008. We don't know what's happened to him since his release, and having been born in 1940, he'd be 80 years old today. We hope you enjoyed this chilling episode of Femacabre, and that watching The Exorcist is now even creepier to watch now that you know that the medical technician in the hospital scene is a real-life murderer. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, And if you're into social media, give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Femacob. 